Well, brothers and sisters, near the end of our Lord's uh, mortal life on earth, he was barraged by questions, various questions, put to him by various combinations of his enemies. And these questions were posed to him as honest questions coming from honest questioners. As though we really don't know the answer to this, Jesus, will you give us the answer? They appeared to be honest questions from honest questioners, but in reality they were snares set before Jesus from wicked, malicious men who wanted to lure him into saying something that would get him into trouble and be a reason for them to arrest him. The question that's put to him in Mark 12, 13 to 17 has to do with whether the poll tax, the census tax, ought to be paid to Caesar or not. To pay or not to pay, we said, is the question. And given the revulsion that many of the Jews had for their Roman occupiers, their Roman overlords, it was a a hot-button issue. It was an emotional issue. Some of the Jews, the more radical zealots, refused to even pay the tax. But coming to question Jesus was not only the religious Pharisees, but the Herodians. The Herodians were the Jews who were the followers of Herod. Herod was a worldly leader, and he had a worldly philosophy, and these were the less religious, more worldly Jews. And the plan by these two groups coming to Jesus was to get him in trouble either with the religious group or You see, if Jesus approved of the tax and said, yeah, pay the poll tax, that could get Jesus into trouble with the pious Jews who were looking to him as their potential Messiah. How could that be our Messiah when he's compromising with the idolatrous Romans if he said, yeah, pay the tax? Now, if he said, no, don't pay the tax, that could get him in trouble through the Herodians with the Roman government. Wait, this guy's acting like an insurrectionist. And insurrectionists are a threat to the government, and we kill them, and perhaps Jesus would be killed if he said, no, don't pay the tax. As we saw Jesus masterfully answers with the words, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. By that divinely wise answer, he escapes on the one hand the charge of insurrection. How could he be accused of being a rebel against Caesar's government when he said, no, pay the tax. Pay the tax to Caesar. That's what is due him. But nor could he be accused of idolatry. Because whereas he said, pay the tax, you see, Caesar claimed divinity by what was on the coin. And Jesus counters that by saying, render to God the things that are God's. Give Caesar what is due him. Give Caesar his tax. But don't give Caesar what he's asking for, worship. That belongs only to God. So Jesus escaped the two horns of the dilemma. He couldn't be accused of being a a rebel insurrectionist, and he couldn't be accused of being an idolater either. With that answer, he escapes accusation. The beautiful balance of Jesus' answer gives me a good springboard to launch into a a few messages on the subject of the Christian's relationship to government, our responsibility to government, and how needful this is. I think you would all agree. Never before in our history than in the last two plus years have we experienced such unprecedented overreach on the part of our government intruding into our personal lives, into our family lives, into our business lives, 
and even into the life of the church. And so I began a series last week, The Christian's Responsibility to Government. We began with the Christian's definition of government. And of course, we take our definition from the scriptures. God gets to define what government is supposed to be. And I noted three things so far as a definition of civil government, the divine origin of civil government. Romans 13 could not be more clear. The powers that be are ordained of God. It's not simply the decretive will of God. You know, in one sense, everything that happens is the will of God, right? He works, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's not his will in that sense that just government happened and God just, you know, permits it. No, he ordained it. He appointed it. And so government is of divine origin. That speaks to us about the legitimacy of human government, really all forms of human government. But the next point was, the delegated authority of human government. Because God is the originator of human government, human government, along with all of human authority, is delegated. It is derived. Therefore, it is limited. Only God is the absolute sovereign in this world. Only of God does it, can it be said, he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one is able to stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And so all human authorities, because they are delegated authorities, are limited authorities. And the third thing we noted is the defined sphere of human government. Every human institution has a defined, defined sphere. We talk about sphere sovereignty. The family, the church, and the state all have a sphere or realm assigned to them. And just in passing, I might note, God has given the family the rod. God has given the church the keys of the kingdom to let people in and let people out. And God has given to the state, what? The sword. That points further to the limitations of government. The fact that it's delegated points to its limitation, and the fact that it has a defined and restricted sphere of authority points to its limits. And the purpose of the government, according to Romans 13, 3 and 4, is to punish evildoers and to promote and reward the doing of good. It's to be the maintainer and promoter of peace and security in human society. And then we looked at the Christian's duty to government and we saw that clearly the overriding duty that we have to human government is to submit. The word hupotasso in the Greek, to put yourself under. That's in every major passage by Paul and Peter. Our job is be in subjection to the governing authorities. That is the overriding responsibility to human government, be submissive to it. And then we saw the other duty if you like alliteration as I do, we can say it's to supplicate God on behalf of human government or to pray for human government. First Peter 2, I urge that prayer, supplications, and treaties and thanksgivings be made for all men to those who are in authority. So submit to government, pray for government. Now this morning, I begin the third point. I thought I was going to cover it, but I'm only beginning it. It'll take at least one other sermon. And we're going to talk about the Christian's disobedience to civil government. And here we bring into view more closely the words of Jesus. Yes, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, 
but render to God the things that are God's. And I'm thankful to a number of authors and books I've read, but in particular for this morning, I'm thankful to uh, Nathan Busnitz. Uh, Brother Nate is a professor at the Master's Seminary, and he co-authored a book with James Coates, the pastor who was imprisoned in Alberta, Canada, a book entitled God and Government, and I'm especially thankful for thoughts this morning from, from his outline. Thankful to him for some of his writing. So on the coin, the denarius with which they were to pay the poll tax was the inscription by which Caesar claimed at least semi-divinity. It read Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. He also claimed to be the high priest. On the other side of the coin, it said Pontiff Maxim, high priest. By these words, render to God the things that are God's. Jesus is clearly implying that whereas the emperor is claiming divinity and claiming that he deserves worship, you are not to give him worship, but you're to give that only to God. Give him his tax, but don't give him, though he demands it, you mustn't give him what belongs only to God. The implication is worship. First, we're going to take up this morning the bases or the grounds of civil disobedience. What factors, what realities lead us to the necessity or the option of disobeying the powers that be? Now here, I'm not talking about the occasions of disobedience, the specific reasons for disobeying. We're going to begin that a little later. But here, we're just talking about principles that push us in the direction of the propriety of disobedience. And first, under this, note God's or Christ's supreme authority. When we're talking about submission to government and really every human authority, this truth is primary. Christ's supreme authority and our allegiance to him. First of all, the Bible says Christ is Lord of all. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter is talking to the household of Cornelius, among other things, he says this, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. And then he notes, he is Lord of all. Jesus is the absolute sovereign of the universe. Jesus Christ is also Lord of his church. In Ephesians 1, 22 and 3, Paul says, and he, God, put all things in subjection under his, Christ's feet, and gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And in more than one place, we are told that Jesus Christ is the head of his church. Beyond that, Jesus Christ is the Lord of every individual believer. I love this section. You need not turn there, but in Romans chapter 14, which is dealing with matters of Christian liberty of conscience. We're not dealing with moral absolutes that apply to everyone. We're dealing with matters in the Christian life that are to be determined not by the moral law of God so much as your individual conscience. Let every man be fully convinced in his own mind. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. When you're making decisions about individual conscience that are not absolutely right or wrong, who gets to be the Lord of your conscience? 
Well, listen to Romans 14, beginning at verse 7. Render to... Oh, that's 13, sorry. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Here it is. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Only the the crucified, risen Christ has the right to be the Lord of your conscience when it comes to those matters of Christian liberty. And we dare not judge one another because only Christ is the Lord of the individual's conscience. Christ is Lord of all. Christ is Lord of the church. And Christ alone is the Lord over your and my individual Christian conscience. Christ's lordship is further underscored by the fact that the Bible says our primary citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power which he has given to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is in heaven. Yes, we are citizens of a nation. We are citizens of a body politic, and that's real, and we should take it seriously. But our primary citizenship is in heaven. Peter underscored this when he said, you are aliens and strangers, and so abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Yes, we're citizens of this world and this nation, but our primary citizenship is in heaven. We are, in a real sense, pilgrims. We're just strangers and, and, and aliens passing through. And therefore, we're to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against our soul because our primary life is a soulish life. It's a spiritual life. It's a life in relationship to God which must be guarded at all costs. We are like Abraham, pilgrims looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. And further, in line with this thinking that Jesus Christ is Lord, he is our supreme Lord, he alone is going to be our final judge. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. No government authority is going to be your judge in the final day. No parent, no pastor is going to be your judge in the final day. Only the Lord Jesus Christ. All this points to the fact that we are duty-bound to obey Christ supremely over all other authorities that may compete with his. Our obedience is our love for Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And we show our loving obedience to Jesus by obeying his word. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. So one factor that is going to point us in the direction of having to disobey governmental authorities is the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. But that needs to be coupled with the next thing, what I'm calling the secular world's perpetual animosity. From the time of man's fall into sin in the garden, we can expect that there will be a perpetual, ongoing antagonism and opposition from those who do not know God. Now, as you know from the New Testament, 
The people who do not know God, that large society of people who do not know God are sometimes called the world, right? The world in, in that sense, in that ethical sense, people who do not know and love God. And there is this perpetual antagonism between people who know and love God and people who don't. When I was preaching through Galatians a few years ago, I was struck by this phrase, and it's stuck with me ever since. Paul is referring to Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael representing the non-believing Jews and Isaac representing the believers, the people of promise. And listen to this statement in Galatians 4 and verse um, 29. But as at that time, He who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now. And that has lodged in my mind. There's this perpetual antagonism. It was so then it will forever be so that those born according to the flesh, those who are of the world who don't know God, will persecute those who are born according to the spirit. This began in Genesis chapter 4, right after man fell into sin. We have Cain, whom John tells us was of the evil one. He was of the God of this age, and he slew his brother Abel because his brother's deeds were righteous and his were evil. And you could track it throughout biblical history, throughout human history. Those who are born according to the flesh, those who don't know and love God, will inevitably persecute those who are born of the Spirit. And let me just give you a sample of that. Uh, Just a sample. You know it's a a theme that permeates Scripture. But Psalm 2, someone cited Psalm 2 this morning. Listen to Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger. But you see the antagonism of of the nations toward God and toward his Christ. They want to dethrone him. You read the Psalms, and I've been in the Psalms for quite some time in my devotions, and one of the pervasive themes of the Psalms, especially the Psalms of David, is the persecution. He's constantly crying out to God in the face of oppression, in the face of of enemies who are unjustly accusing him and and attacking him and threatening his well-being, threatening his life. I'll just read a few samples of that in Psalm 17, 8 and following, the Psalm of David. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who despoil me. My deadly enemies who surround me, they have closed their unfeeling heart. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion that is eager to tear and as a young lion lurking in hiding places. Psalm 35, chapter, uh, verse 1. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. And then in verse 7, for without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my soul. And we can read on and on in the Psalms about the antagonism of the enemies of the Lord against his people. Come to the New Testament. And what does our Lord Jesus tell us in John 15, 8? 
The world hates you. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. The world hated Jesus. The world will hate his people. Near the end of that upper room discourse, he says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. In Acts 14, on the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas have some converts in Lystra, Iconium, and and, um, Antioch, and they double back and visit them. And what do they tell these new believers? Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. You're a believer now. You're going to have new enemies. You're going to have new trouble. The implication is you're going to have persecution. It's the way it is. It's the norm for believers. The apostle Paul makes this canopy statement in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal coming among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised at persecution. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. Don't be surprised at the, of, about the antagonism of those born according to the flesh. And here's the point, that this animosity and this antagonism from the secular world will be reflected in secular governments. And we see that throughout history. Now, we're not saying like the Anabaptists that government is the kingdom of the devil. And that's why they have nothing to do with it, because it's the kingdom of the devil. We don't make that equation. However, most governments throughout history have been dominated by worldly people, and they are secular. And as secular governments and governors, they persecute God's people. Pharaoh opposed Moses and the Hebrews. The wicked kings of Israel, all of them in the north, most of them in the southern kingdom of Judah, persecuted and opposed the godly prophets, Elijah, Elisha, and others. In the New Testament, Herod Antipas killed John the Baptist. Jesus is falsely accused by the Jewish high court, unjustly killed by the wicked Romans. Herod Agrippa killed James and imprisoned Peter. And the Roman emperor, the Roman uh, emperors horribly persecuted the early Christians. And all of church history is filled with the accounts of believers being imprisoned, tortured, and killed, sometimes by worldly religious authorities, the Roman Catholic Church and others, and sometimes by secular authorities. So you put these two things together. Human governments who hate God, hate Christ, hate his word, hate his people, and see themselves as sovereigns who can do according to their will and do whatever they please and therefore make laws that are contrary to the moral laws of God, you put that together with our primary allegiance to Jesus, and what do you have? You have a formula for conflict between God and government and the need for the believer to choose. So those are two realities that kind of precipitate and point to the need for disobedience to government. Here's a third, the example of Jesus. Jesus' exemplary activity. Now, Jesus is our perfect example for all things, isn't he? Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
The only reason we're to imitate any human role models is as they imitate Christ, because our goal is to imitate Jesus, to be like Jesus in all things. Jesus is our example of suffering unjustly, and we will be called to do that and to submit to it. And so in 1 Peter 2.21 and following, you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So Jesus is our example in all things. In particular, he's our example in submitting to suffering when it is our lot to do so. But for our purpose here, Jesus is also our example when it comes to defying and disobeying human authorities. One of the religious authorities in Jesus' day was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had multiplied man-made rules to which they, which they added to the law of God, as though the law of God was not sufficient. How did Jesus respond to the laws of the Pharisees? Well, without turning you there, I'll just recall Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, when we studied it. There's a man in the synagogue with a withered hand. The Pharisees were there waiting and watching Jesus, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, which would be contrary not to the law of God, but to their man-made rules. And Jesus looks at the man with the withered hand. And as I like to say, he whispered to him and said, Psst, hey, come back tomorrow. These guys won't be here. It won't be the Sabbath. I'll stay out of trouble and you'll be healed. It's not what he said. He said, step forward. And in the sight of those enemies who were just waiting to find the accusation against him, stretch forth your hand. And he healed him in deliberate defiance of the man-made rules of the Pharisees. He aggravated them. It says they went out and plotted his death. Jesus did not submit to the man-made rules of the Pharisees. He deliberately defied them. He could have healed the man on another day but he deliberately went against their man-made rules, which were against the law of his father. The other major group in Judaism was the Sadducees. They were the theological liberals, we would call them, right? They didn't believe in resurrection. And they were in charge of the temple. Now, on two occasions, Jesus had certain plans for the temple. Did he come to the Sadducean leaders and say, man, I, I just wanted to let you know I'm planning to come into the temple and uh, you see this whip here? I'm going to use this whip and uh, whip the animals and I'm going to overturn a few tables and, you know, let the coins jangle on the floor and drive out the money changers. That's okay with you guys? He didn't ask permission, did he? He went into that temple with his whip of cords, overturned the tables, drove out the animals, drove out the money changers. Why? Because it wasn't the house of the Sadducees. It was his father's house. They were violating his father's intention. Jesus was not subordinate to that government, which was in defiance against God. Jesus also took it upon himself to publicly rebuke the religious leaders the most extended and scathing account, as you know, is in Matthew 23, 
where over and over again he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I'll give you just a sample. Matthew 23, beginning at verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land and make to make one proselyte, and when it, he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Jesus did not shrink back from rebuking the leaders of his day. Further, Jesus, prior to his hour coming, when he would submit to arrest, he did not submit himself to capture by his enemies. They would have captured him sooner. He resisted it. He didn't let it happen. John 8, 59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Uh-uh, you're not going to kill me now. You're not going to capture me now. My hour has not yet come. And in Luke 9, 9, we read, Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear these things, such things? And he kept trying to see him. He wanted to see Jesus. He wanted a personal interview with Jesus. Jesus said, uh-uh. No, you're not getting it. So what I'm saying is Jesus is our example in all things. He's our example of humble servanthood and non-retaliation when the hour of suffering had come upon him. But he's also our example in defying and disobeying human rules and regulations that were contrary to the law of God, his Father. So these are some factors that lead us to the reality of having to disobey government. Now, I want to at least begin the occasions and forms of disobedience or insubordination. Um, and let me be clear in reminding you that the general disposition of the believer toward human government, the predominant response to government ought to be submission. That's the word that dominates the main passages. Be in subordination, be in subjection, hupotasso, put yourself under. That continues to be the predominant disposition and response of the believer to government. But what I want to show you is that submission does not mean universal obedience. And here we're going to get into the actual occasions, the actual life situations where the Christian either must or may disobey government. And there's a distinction. There are times when we must disobey other times when we may disobey. I'm not going to cover all of them this morning. This morning, I want to cover two categories where the Christian must disobey governmental authorities. And the first is this, disobeying government when it commands what God forbids. When government laws would command God's people to do something that God forbids them to do in his word, the believer must disobey the human authority. Not may, he must. And some examples will perhaps come to mind. Perhaps others will not come to mind. As I was studying, I hadn't thought of some of these examples. But you think of Joseph in Genesis 39, 7 to 10. You know the story well of Joseph. He's in the household of Potiphar. And Potiphar is referred to as his master because, as we'll see, 
Potiphar's wife is referred to as his master's wife. So Joseph is a man under authority. He's under the authority of Pharaoh in Egypt. But we read in Genesis 39, 7, it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and said, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And he left his coat in her hands and he ran. He disobeyed his master's authority. It landed him in prison. But he was being asked to do something God forbade, and that's violate the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And so he didn't do it. In Exodus chapter 1, you're familiar with the Hebrew midwives. We read beginning in chapter 1, verse 15, of the Hebrew midwives there in Egypt. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other was named Puah. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can get to them. That may have been true, wasn't the whole truth. So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and because and became very mighty murder those babies. Hebrew midwives feared God and said, we will not do what you're commanding. They feared God and God honored them for it. We read about Rahab, right? Just this morning in James chapter two. And Rahab uh, took the spies sent by Moses and she housed them. And we read in Joshua chapter two, beginning at verse two, what Rahab did to her credit Joshua 2.2, 2. it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight in search to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order uh, on the roof. So the men pursued them on this road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Rahab would not be party to killing these spies. She feared God. She feared the God of Israel. And as James 2 tells us, she was rewarded by God. for That was the proof, one of the works that was the proof of her justification. She was asked to do something contrary to the will of God, to murder or be party to it. She disobeyed. In First uh, Samuel 19, Jonathan is told by his father that, that he wants to kill Saul. And Jonathan was unwilling to do that, but went to Saul, to, to David, his friend, ratted on Saul and protected.
rejected David. Rather than being party to killing David, whom he knew was the Lord's future anointed, he protected David, contrary to the command of the king, his father. The servants of Saul in 1 Samuel twenty-two seventeen, and you can just read that for yourself, but David, in his running from Saul, had gone to Nob and talked to the priest of Nob, and David lied. David said, I'm on a mission from the king. So the priest of Nob believed that. And when he went to Saul, he said, yeah, David came. And and Saul, who was so insanely jealous and paranoid about David, thought that the priest was in collusion with David. And King Saul ordered that his servants to kill 80 priests of Yahweh. And we're told that the servants refused to do that. Saul found others to carry out his dirty work. But here is another occasion where men under authority refused to obey and kill the priests of the Lord in obedience to God. And then we have the well-known Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. And you know the story there. These Jewish exiles were commanded to worship the image of the king. In Daniel 3, beginning at verse 8, For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar, the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whose these men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. They were commanded to worship the golden image, God said, you shall have no other gods before me. God said, you shall not make a, a likeness or an, an idol or likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or on the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. You can't worship any other God. You can't make an idol of God. And these three men could not obey the king and obey their God at the same time. And what did they do? They disobeyed the king. They obeyed God. They were thrown into the fiery furnace. And what do we read in 324? Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And many believe it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ there in the fire with them, and their clothes didn't even smell of smoke. Now, God didn't have to do that, and they knew that. But God honored their disobedience to the king because they were honoring his command. And so, the first occasion for not obeying human authorities is when the government commands us to do something that God forbids. The flip side of that, the corollary to that, and it's all we'll cover this morning, is disobeying government when it forbids what God commands, okay? When it commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands. And on that occasion as well, we must disobey God. 
Moses in Exodus 5 through 11. God said through Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no. Pharaoh would have prohibited and forbidden the people of God leaving. Moses said, we go. God said, let him go. Pharaoh said, no. Moses said, we go. Pharaoh was forbidding what God commanded. And did God back that up? With 10 plagues and a miraculous deliverance through the Red Sea. Daniel and Daniel 6. Daniel was serving in the government of Darius, king of Persia. Because of this advancement, of his advancements, other satraps became jealous of him. And I'm just going to paraphrase it because for time's sake, because I think you know the story well. And um, these other jealous satraps convinced King Darius uh, uh, to make a, a law. And um, that law that was that they were to pray to no one except him. Only pray to, to him. But then we read... In 6.10 of Daniel, now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, you can only pray to King Darius. When Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Business as usual for Daniel. Despite the decree, you've got to pray only to the king. No, I pray only to Yahweh. And I will continue doing what I've always been doing because I'm under the command of my God to pray to him alone. As a result, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. And you know that God stopped the mouths of the lions. Was it because they weren't hungry? No, because then the guys who had convinced the king to make the law, they were thrown in and they were immediately devoured. It wasn't that the lions were not hungry. It was that God supernaturally stopped their mouths to protect Daniel because Daniel refused um, to do something contrary to God. Uh, the the uh, king was uh, commanding something that uh, was contrary to God's will. And then we come to, uh, we're almost done here, but the New Testament is very clear. In Acts chapter 4, um, G the apostles, as you know, were under the Great Commission, as are we. Go and make disciples of all the nations. In Acts chapter 4, Apostle Peter and John, they were obeying that. They were preaching the gospel. And we read in verse 2 of Acts chapter 4, being greatly disturbed because this is that the... Uh, the Jewish leaders greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they dragged Peter and John before the authorities, and um, they say, but so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, Peter and John, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Jesus said, speak, we're forbidding you to speak, the resolution of the apostles, 19 and 20, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, we're under your authority, we will submit to your punishment. But for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Jesus said, preach. You said, don't preach. We have to preach. 
And in Acts 5, 28 and 29, as they continue, despite imprisonment, they continue to do this. We have this principle. When they had brought them again, they stood before the, the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter said, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And there's a general principle. Not only must we obey you, the San, not obey you, the Sanhedrin, but in general, whenever government or authority forbids something that God commands, we must obey God rather than men. So, brothers and sisters, these are the two more obvious cases where we must disobey. If the government commands something that God forbids, we must obey God. If the government forbids something that God commands, we must obey God rather than men. Now, there are four others that we'll consider, God willing, next week. Disobeying when government oversteps its bounds, gets out, out of its sphere of sovereignty. Disobeying when governments conflict. This is the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. And I'm not really knowledgeable of that, so I purchased a book which arrived yesterday, which I'm going to read this week, about the lesser magistrate. When different levels of government disagree, you, you may obey one level of government. I need to learn more before I speak. And then disobeying by fleeing and rebuking disobedient governments. And we'll consider these, God willing, next week. Now, for our application, as we close, I'm not sure that our government has been so bad these days that it's commanding something that God forbids or forbidding something that God commands, unless in some states like California, where they forbade the church to meet or restricted the number or said you may not sing. There have been restrictions in other places where our government is, is doing that. I think in many areas, we're, we're dealing with the realm of the government overstepping its bounds, getting outside its sphere. We'll deal with that next week. But for the most part thus far, the, our government has not been brazenly and blatantly um, commanding us or forbidding us, but who knows what's coming in the future. But as we close, let me say that where are, there are times when we must and other times we may obey civil government there is an authority that must be obeyed unquestioningly, unhesitatingly, and without qualification. And that's the authority of God. And I ask, have you bowed your heart to God? What does it mean to bow your heart to God? It means to accept that God has made himself known to us in a revelation in the Bible. And to submit to God means that you believe the message of the Bible which says that you're part of a human race that is in rebellion against God. We've all sinned and turned our back on God and gone, turned to our own way. You need to accept that diagnosis of yourself and then accept God's only solution. He so loved a world of rebel sinners that he sent his own son to suffer and die in our place so that by faith in him, all of your sins, all of your expressions of independence and self-will and rebellion will be put on Jesus, paid for, punished by Jesus, and Jesus' perfect obedience, perfect record of righteousness will be credited to you, and you will stand before God completely forgiven and fit for heaven. And even though you will continue to sin as much as you sin, that sin will be covered by the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us from all sin. That's one authority we dare not 
disobey in the least. Submit your heart to the authority of God in his word and in his gospel by trusting in his son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that it is sufficient for all of life. And in particular, it tells us everything we need to know to relate rightly to human authorities and human government. Help us to be accurate in our understanding and obedient to the truth we understand. In Jesus' name.